We're going to jump into something that's not, I mean, it's, it's a core foundation. We're starting a three-week series in doctrine. We're starting a three-week series in what we believe as Christians. And so when you come to church on a Sunday morning, um, I think you don't come in thinking, that's great, I want to hear some lectures on theology. That sounds awesome. But that's not, but just stick with me. Just stick with me. Um, that's not what we're going to land. We're going to be in a series um, on the basics of our belief for three weeks. So today we're going to talk about the Trinity and we're going to talk about Revelation, the revealed um, nature of God through His Word. And, and next week we're going to talk about creation and how God made it all, He made it perfect, and how it fell from the garden in sin. And then the last week we're going to talk about Jesus. The why do we need Him? Why couldn't just a good and loving God just wipe the slate clean? That's what He did on the cross. So why would I even need to believe in Him to have a relationship with Him? So today we're going to start with the Trinity. We're going to start with the Trinity and Revelation. Hey, Ben, could you switch the screen? I'm going to show. But I wanted to share a couple of resources with you. Uh, while we're going through this for the next several weeks, there's a couple books that I usually point people to. Um, one on the left is Mark Driscoll's book, Doctrine. It, it was written about five years ago, and um, it's about a 16-chapter book where it slowly walks through the basics of our belief. Um, it doesn't try to get you to become a Mark Driscollite or a certain denomination. It doesn't really delve into the open-handed issues, um, the issues that have split churches over preferences and styles. It really doesn't get into that stuff. What it does is it says this is the basics of our belief. This is the basics of who we are. If you claim Christ as Savior, then you need to have an understanding of this. Um, it doesn't get into the, you know, like the family reunion, crazy cousin kind of stuff. Like, we're all Christians, and we're part of the same family, and that's the core of what we believe, and that's the core of our identity. But when you start having, like, the crazy cousin that comes to the family reunion has that real far-off, kind of nuts kind of belief, but he's still part of the family. He's still part of the family. Well, this is how you know if you're part of the family, is these core beliefs. Um, and so then we also have Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem. It's kind of the... It's what you would... If you take a seminary class in theology... Uh, most pastors probably have a copy of this. I have the digital version. I think Charlie has the print version. Um, it's this giant, crazy, thick book that will burn your brain, but it'll be worth it to wade through it and have a good understanding of what we believe as Christians. Also, a couple shorter books by R.C. Sproul that I read, um, just kind of coming into this, was What is the Trinity and Who is the Holy Spirit? Now, there's a, a bazillion resources out there. These are just the ones that I trust and I've read. Um, I won't recommend things to you that I haven't read myself because that's just dishonest. Um, but I have read these and I do trust these authors. So as we go through the next three weeks, the first two, um, the doctor book is probably a good entry level. Systematic Theology is an awesome resource, um, but it's really heavy. And then literally and figuratively. <laughs> but uh, nothing? Okay. But then these, these are 60 page, about 60 page books that are um, short, sweet, direct to the point. And so I just wanted to recommend those. So let's pray, and then we'll jump into the Trinity. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this day. Um, thank you for the time we can have together where we can come as a church family, and we can lift our voices in praise, and we can come and study your word. And Lord, this isn't um, the typical kind of service we have where we're walking through a certain section of Scripture. We're kind of all over the place. So I pray that you would help people to see, um, help me to have the right words to say, um, help us to understand this giant, huge theological concept that is not very easy to understand, but yet it's essential 
and understanding the heart of your grace and mercy for your children. So we love you, Lord, and I pray that you open us up and you'll let us receive all you have. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, the Trinity, this symbol of the Trinity. Now, I, I was going to put a picture up of you know Trinity from the Matrix, but some of you probably don't know who that is, but that's okay. Um, but in the Trinity, we have this confusing concept that God is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, that there is one God. Um, the Bible is very clear throughout its entirety that there is one God, one God and one God only. But then you get into the book of Genesis and you start seeing things like, we created Adam and Eve in our image. You start going, wait a minute. It says we and our, and there's plural words. I mean, even in the, the first naming of God, when it says, in the beginning, God, the Hebrew word is Elohim, which is a plural word. So God in plural. So you have all of these kind of things floating around and it can really fry your brain. You go, what? Okay, so there's one God, but yet we just sang the doxology after offering that said, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So how does that work? There's three, but there's one. I'm confused. And to be honest, I don't know that you'll ever completely and perfectly understand it. Um, Eli, since he's probably been about four years old, maybe even younger, three to four, has asked about the Trinity. Um, he had watched me um, baptize people and baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus taught us to. And so he would ask, well, we worship God and Jesus, but who's this Holy Spirit guy? Well, that's the one we don't like to talk about. Um, that's the one that we just, you know, creeps people out. And we don't want to talk about the Holy Spirit being in and around and near you and coming to dwell in you. We don't want to talk about that. Well, God and Jesus are distant. We'll do that. So, G so Eli, since he's four years old, has asked me about the Trinity. So I've tried to explain to my four-year-old the idea of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that they're all one, but they're all also independent and co-equal. And so you think it's hard enough to explain it to a four-year-old. Think about sitting down with a college student or sitting down with an adult and trying to explain this. It is, it's a monumental task. So, but we're going to do it today. Here's some bad ways people have tried. And if you've done this, this isn't a slam on you. I'm not, I'm not slamming what you've tried because we have to come into this understanding. This is almost an impossible thing to explain to someone, but it's crucial. So there's been some ways that people have tried to explain the Trinity over the years that are decent attempts, but at their core, they're not helpful because it can lead people down a, a different road, a dark path. So one would be that God's like an egg. Well, you know, you got the shell and you got the yolk and you got the white and, you know, it's liquid or it's scrambled or it's fried. And people will try to explain it that way, that there's these three kind of essences of God. Some people will try to say the, the three-leaf clover. And you'll hear this around St. Patrick's Day that St. Patrick was walking through the field and he picked up a clover and he's trying to teach this Father, Son, and Holy Spirit um, through the idea of a three-leaf clover. Well, that, that's okay, but you still have three people on one leaf. And so you, you've gotten to a place of, of polytheism where you, you're believing in three separate gods on one plant. That's not helpful. Um, and then you have the, if it works, how about the apple? How an apple is like the Trinity. You've got the core and the seed and the flesh and the, the outer shell, the skin, the best tasting part of the apple. So you've got all that kind of, and it's, it's attempts at explaining something that's very difficult to explain. Um, there's a sheet of paper. You have a handout if you want on the way out. You can get that. Um, it's black and white, and I'm going to put the color version. I'll put it on the website or link to it on Facebook. 
but it has all of these examples. And at the bottom it says bad illustrations. It has the clover. It also talks about the water ice steam. The Trinity's like a block of ice. It's solid. Then you heat it up and it turns liquid and heat up enough and becomes steam. And that's the three natures of God. Well, the problem with that is you start with one block of ice. You're actually teaching modalism, which is that God is one. You're teaching oneness, but he has different modes. He's got a split personality, which you wouldn't think would be a big deal, but you're going to see how it's a big deal in a minute. One of the other holy trinities, the ways to explain it, would be this one. Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman. Nothing. Man, Amber was right. None of you were going to laugh at all. I tried. I was so excited because it's comic booky, and I'm like, it's the Holy Trinity of the Justice League, and she's like, no one's going to laugh at that, making fun of me, and I was so excited, and she, you proved her right. That's not good. Okay. All right, let's just move on to the Bible. Um, but we see the Trinity pop up everywhere. The triqueta or the Trinity knot is all over the place. Um, you will see it in, uh, in multitude of areas. You'll see this interconnected link of the Trinity knot um, through Celtic culture, and you'll see it throughout lots of other art forms. You'll see this idea of the Trinity. And so the core of it is this idea of the Father, the Son of the Lamb, and the Holy Spirit, which we see represented like a dove in Acts. Remember we talked about an Acts that wasn't literally a dove? Descended like a dove, peacefully. And so you'll see this imagery throughout um, art, throughout culture, what we're trying to get at is an explanation of something we only find in the scriptures. So first, the foundation that God eternally exists is three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Each person is fully God and there is one God. This is where it gets confusing. That you have one God. The Bible is crystal clear that there is one God. Crystal clear. Any other gods that exist in the planet that are called gods are either false attempts at explaining, we'll get to it later, but it's called general revelation, that God has generally revealed himself to the world. And so as people try to explain that, they create religions. That out of something you're born with, you're born with an innate understanding that there's something bigger than you. And so people try to explain in a multitude of ways. So you end up with all kinds of different religions. Um, Or... The other would be that that's just trying to attempt to explain something they don't understand, or you have other religions pop up, which are essentially demon worship. That there's false gods. That there are, there are false gods, spiritual beings that can perform miracles and do things we would call miracles, but they do them in the name of someone other than God. But we as Christians believe there's one God, one God only, eternally existing in three divine people. Three persons that are co-equal and co-eternal have always existed. There's never been a beginning. There will never be an end. Co-equal, co-existent. Now, we'll see how this fleshes out personally in just a little bit. God is the Father. Most people don't disagree with this. There aren't many scholars in any denomination or any faith, um, even across the world and other religions. They're going to say that, They believe in this father figure of God, a creator God, okay? In the Old Testament, we see in Deuteronomy, the claim of God being the father. The Lord is God. There is no other besides him. 32, God says, there is no God beside me. In Psalm 86.10, we have the praise to God. You alone are God. Isaiah 43.10, God says, before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be after me. Isaiah 45, I am the Lord. So this is God saying, there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. 
In 1 Timothy, the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. And in 1 Timothy 2, there is one God. So the Bible clearly proclaims God the Father. That there is one God, one God only. We see throughout the Old Testament that people, there was Baal, there was Molech, there's all these false gods. So it isn't like that the Bible existed, Bible times, and all of a sudden, after Jesus died, appeared Muhammad and Buddha and all these people. It's existed from the beginning of the Jewish people. There have been false gods that have existed, that have been put in front of the Jewish people, in front of the Christian people, and they have completely rejected them. They aren't God. So the Bible teaches there's one God. So any time you get into a place of faith, a faith community that claims Christ and claims Jesus and claims the Bible and then starts to begin to say, well, I think there might be some other gods out there. They're wrong. They're, they're going outside the bounds of Scripture. Okay? Then we get to Jesus. The God is Jesus. Jesus is God. You have God the Father, God the Son. And this is typically the litmus test for faith. You can talk about God all day long with people from all over the world and multiple backgrounds of faith. But you begin to mention Jesus, that's when things start getting a little tense. When you start mentioning his name, that he is the Son of God, he's God in flesh, people start getting irritated. They don't want to talk to you. They call you closed-minded. Well, let's see what the Bible says about Jesus. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So you have in the beginning of John's Gospel the proclamation that Jesus is the Word. And so you have in this, the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God. And Jesus was God. Jesus was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Jesus, and without Jesus was not anything made that was made. So it's not God makes it all happen, and then later on he has a baby boy named Jesus who decides to shoot down into Mary, and now she's born flesh. It's Jesus existed in the Trinity from the beginning, the very beginning of it all. And he was there in the creation of the world. We see it in Colossians that, every, that, that Jesus spoke it all into existence. So you've got to get out of your head that here's God the Father, the big white-haired, long robe, you know, think kind of Psy from Duck Dynasty but with more authority, right? <laughs> Sitting on his throne, and he's in charge, and then here's like this boy that comes along, and he's like, hey, you're my son, just go do what I say. The picture is of Father God, the Son Jesus, and the Holy Spirit in a perfect unity, in a perfect community, together, co-equal, but with different roles, different jobs, different responsibilities. We continue to see how the Bible calls Jesus God. So whoever the word is, it's the Father, and he is God. We see in John eight fifty eight. Jesus speaks and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. So Jesus, when confronted by Jewish leaders, he says, Before Abraham was born, I am. I was there. I was there before Abraham was born. That's why they wanted him dead. Because he consistently proclaimed himself to be God. 
He said, I'm God in flesh. I'm here. I'm the one. I am. And he made claims that got him killed because it was true. Right? That's kind of the C.S. Lewis classic. Um, you either have to call Jesus a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. But you have to do something with Jesus. Either you say he's a liar, that he was a flat-out liar, a manipulator, that he was crazy. He's a crazy man that no one should ever listen to, or he's Lord. You have to do one of the three. You can't just say he was a good teacher. You can't just say he was a smart guy, good teacher, buddy love, hug Jesus, because he said himself, I'm God. So you have to do something with him. We continue on. In Romans, Paul says, Christ is God over all. Titus, Paul also says, he speaks of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. John 5.20 declares, Jesus Christ, he is the one true God. So you have to do something with Jesus, that he's God in flesh. He's, he's the part of the Trinity that stepped out of heaven to come and be with us, 100% man, 100% God. The theological term is the hypostatic union. The idea that in Jesus you had fullness of divinity and fullness of humanity. And then we get to the Holy Spirit, the part of the Trinity that we don't talk about very much. In Ephesians 4.30, says that when we sin, we grieve the Holy Spirit, which lets us know that the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is a man. The Holy Spirit isn't just Casper the friendly ghost with a cross around his neck. <laughs> that it's, he's not an electrical force. He's not a feeling. He's not just something in the ether that we smell and gives us goosebumps during a worship song. That the Holy Spirit is part of the Trinity. A man. His form is not in flesh. His form is to be with us. His form is to come be in our hearts, to capture us. He lives with us. He dwells with us. Those who are far from God, the Holy Spirit interacts with and woos them to himself. The Holy Spirit is who convicts you of your sin. When you're, that, when you're so far from God, you don't even know what you're doing is against God until God tells you it is. So the Holy Spirit's the part of the Trinity that comes to dwell with us. That's why Jesus said, it's better for me to go and die. It's better for me to die because when I leave, I'm sending a helper. I'm sending the Holy Spirit. So I could hang out with you in my flesh, in my body, and I could only talk to so many people at a time. But the part of the Trinity that can interact with the whole world at once is coming. So it's better for me to go die and better for the Holy Spirit to come and live with you so that you have the power to be righteous. So the Holy Spirit is a person, not just a ghost. I'm not saying that's a bad terminology because it speaks to the, it speaks to the nature. But you can't think like the Holy, the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit's like some ghost hunter TV show and we can go capture it and we're looking, we're wearing special goggles so we can see. And That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the ever-present nature of God. I mean, in, in Genesis 1, what's it say? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So that's that plural word. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So the first two verses of the Bible speaks to the nature of the Holy Spirit. We continue through Genesis, and that's why it says, We created them in our image. Talking about the birth of Adam and Eve, the creation of Adam and Eve, the creation of the garden, that we created them. 
we, the Trinity, created Adam and Eve. In what? The image of the Trinity. The image of this relationship. The image of God. So it's not that the writers of Genesis were crazy and they talked about multiple gods and there were many gods before them. It was that they were talking about the Trinity. From the very beginning, we find this in the Scriptures. The Holy Spirit, in Acts 7-1, He's one who convicts of sin. He leads us, guides us, informs us, instructs us, enables us. We can fight against Him. We can reject Him. You can't reject Casper. He'll just walk through you. You can't reject a ghost because they don't care. You can reject a person. We can reject the Holy Spirit. We can say no to Him. Continuing on, Hebrews 10.29 says he, can't, he can be insulted. You can't insult electricity. 2 Corinthians, Paul says, now the Lord is the Spirit. And then in Acts 5, we talked about Ananias and Sapphira. And so when Ananias and Sapphira, um, they lied. Um, they were trying to be, they wanted to have the, the, the accolades of Barnabas. They wanted to sell their property and give it and the church to pat them on the back and say, you guys are awesome. And so in that, they lied. They brought their, what they sold, they sold their belongings, they kept a portion back for themselves, which is perfectly fine. We taught this, you can go back and listen to it. So if the Holy Spirit or God um, encourages you to give a certain amount, then you just listen to God. But when you show up in church and you proclaim to everyone that you've given it all away, and I'm awesome, and please pat me on the back, and you come forward, you put it in an offering basket, and inside, internally, you've hidden back some for you, you're trying to get this praise that's not deserved to you. God didn't tell, doesn't tell us we have to sell our belongings. He doesn't tell us that. So you shouldn't walk around acting like you did. So when this happens, they're lying to God. Well, look how it's written. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? So who's she lying to? The Holy Spirit. Who's he lying to? The Holy Spirit. And to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? He's saying, this was yours anyway. Why are you lying about it? God's not telling you to give it all. Just whatever. Put it in the basket. Quit worrying about it. But you're trying to get pride out of it. And after it was sold, was it not yours at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So you know the book of Acts, saying the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is God. So we get to this. Here's the problems. This is on the handout that I have for you. You have modalism, which claims that there's three different forms or modes of God. Sometimes it's called oneness. We believe in God. There's one God, but He has different personalities. He has different modes. He has different concepts. Some days He's the happy Jesus. Some days He's the wrathful God. And other days, he's the you know, dove floating around in the earth, on the earth like the Holy Spirit. The problem is that that's not what the Bible teaches. You have subordination. Subordinationism claims the Son and Holy Spirit are subordinate to the Father. So God's in charge. He's big daddy. And the Son and the Holy Spirit do what he says because he's in charge. A hierarchical understanding. The problem with that is it's not what the Bible teaches. And then we have um, tritheism that says it denies there's only one God. Instead, it claims that there are three separate distinct gods. Think Greek gods. Think the Panhellenic, the Greek, we'll stop there. 
the Hellenistic ideas of multiple gods on Mount Olympus, that they're all separate. That's not what the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches us this way. So that's why the clover doesn't work, ice doesn't work, father, son, husband doesn't work, doesn't work. We have one good example, which is this. That God is the Son, God is the Spirit, God is the Father, but the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. Let that sink in for 20 seconds. Okay? This is about the only good example we have of trying to explain this. It's in the Trinity knot. The idea of the triangle. That God, the Son, is God. Jesus is God. The Holy Spirit is God. The Father God is God. But they are not the same. You have three distinct personalities, one God. Now, I'm not saying you're going to understand this fully. I'm not saying, but it speaks to everything that we are as Christians. It will fry your brain, and you'll be better for it. But that's what we believe. We believe in the Trinity because it speaks volumes throughout all of Scripture. We see it in the birth of Jesus. And the angel answered her, Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. So you have the Holy Spirit. The power of the Most High, Father God, will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God, Jesus. If you begin to read the Scriptures through the lens of the Trinity, you'll begin to see it pop up everywhere. Not always all three, but a lot of times you'll see both. Father and Son. Son, Holy Spirit. Father God, Holy Spirit. You'll see them pop up together in a multitude of areas. We see throughout, the, throughout Genesis, we see the high priest Melchizedek show up. Most scholars land that that's Jesus. It's Jesus appearing to Abraham before Jesus was ever born. So he shows up and has a meal and a covenant with Abraham, like a pre-covenant, a promise of the covenant coming with Abraham. So you have these things happening all around in the scriptures that if you just open your eyes, you'll see. But what's that mean for us? That's great. Just spent 15 minutes teaching you theology. Awesome. What's it mean for us? Well, it means for us today that God is love. Most people, when you talk about Jesus, you talk about God, talk about the church, they land that God is love. That God is love. That because God is love, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his son into the world so that we might live through him. So we didn't love him first. He loved us first. And so when we teach the gospel, when we share the good news of Jesus Christ, we always wrap it around the love that God has for his rebellious creation. That God is love. The embodiment of love. So what's that mean in the Trinity? Well, it means that God had a perfect relationship in love with himself. That he doesn't need you. He wants you. He doesn't need you to make himself complete. In the community of the Trinity, he was perfect. He is perfect. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the perfect community. Now we see glimpses of this in marriages. Tangible examples of the Trinity. 
tangible examples of mutual love, mutual submission, coexistence with each other. Now, what's, I really hate the fact that the word submission um, over the last hundred years has become something to be really negative and really bad. For a lot of bad reasons it's bad, good reasons we see it as bad. Because for a long time people were oppressed. And so the word submission means you do what I say. I'm in charge. It's that, that tritheism. It's the subordination method that says God's in charge. He's the dad. He's the man. He does it. But the perfect example of the Trinity is mutual submission, mutual affection, mutual love. But there's also separate roles, separate jobs. God the Father reigns and rules over the universe. God the Son came down to live with us and show us how to live and die for our sin. God the Father didn't die for our sin. God the Son died for our sin. God the Holy Spirit comes to be with us. God the Son, Jesus doesn't walk around the planet. He's not here anymore teaching us how to live. But God the Holy Spirit has a role and has a job, which is to live amongst us and in us and through us. And the power of God flows through us because of the Holy Spirit. So in Amber and I's marriage, um, I am always in charge. She submits to my authority. Right? Now the laughter means you've talked to my wife and you know her this much. That's not how marriage works. It's not how good marriage works. It's not how biblical marriage works. And anybody that uses the words of Paul in Colossians or in Ephesians and tries to say that man should be the Lord of it all with an iron fist is probably a person that's never been married. Because it doesn't work. I can come into my house. Hey, Amber, I found this great deal. We're going to do this. We're going to go for it. She does not bow down and say, of course, husband. (laughs) More often than not, she tells me no, and then I'm a fool. Right? She doesn't come to me and say, I really think we should do this. Here's where we're going. I'm just going to make the decision. If we lived that way where she just made her own decisions as an independent woman in our marriage, and I made my decisions as an independent man in my marriage, how quickly would we be in marital counseling? Pretty rapidly. But instead, as we're, we're, if we're image bearers of God, and God was made in a trinity, God's, his heartbeat is in a trinitarian perfect community, and we're his image bearers, that's why we long for community. That's why we long for relationship. You can't be left alone for too long or you're going to go crazy. Some people do well with long periods of time with no social interaction with other people, but most of us thrive on good relationship. So my marriage, I can't be perfect. I can't be the best husband that God wanted me to be. I can't be the best father. I can't be the best pastor. I can't do those things. It's hard to make those decisions. It's hard to live that kind of a life without the power of the Holy Spirit living in me, taking care of me, guiding me, showing me, having a wife that's been given to me as a good gift from God to say, this is how we're going to do this. So we're going to have our ideas. We're going to share them with each other. We're going to seek the Holy Spirit. And then we're going to come to a decision. That the goal is a perfect relationship. And we can't, We can't attain that because we're not God. We're not the Holy Spirit and we're not Jesus. But we use the Trinity as an example, a tangible example of relationships and living in relationship with each other. Your families are also that way. 
The church is that way. Why do you think there was all this marriage language throughout the scriptures? Where Jesus says, I'm coming to claim my bride. I'll come back for my bride. Why is he using marriage language? Because marriage is one of the best tangible examples of the gospel. Or even if I offend my wife or she offends me, because we are in relationship, we're going to forgive. There might be, you know, I might need some correction from her. But there's going to be forgiveness. There's going to be love, mutual submission to each other, co-equals in the relationship to move forward. Because that's the picture of how God wants it. Yes, we'll get this next year when we go through Colossians, but he makes men and women different. There are complementary roles. Some marriages have one role being done by one and one role being done by the other. And so you have roles, you have assignments, you have jobs, you have ways of do. But in the, the core of it, it shouldn't be, I'm the man of the house. When that's taught out of Ephesians and Colossians, it's often taught horrifically wrong. The, the idea is for us to be striving towards the Trinity relationships of mutual submission and mutual affection. We see that in the church. He's coming for his bride. There's a reason why the first miracle was was water being turned to wine at a wedding feast. It's a picture of heaven. It's a picture of the feast that's going to happen for eternity when we are reunited with Jesus. There's, There's a reason why it hurts so bad when divorce happens. When marital strife hits, when mom and dad are fighting, the kids witness it. Why do you think it's so damaging? And why? Because why? it's not what God intended. He intended for us to live in relationship with each other, in relationships of cohabitation, mutual submission, and love. So when you read through the scriptures, that's what he's talking about. When you read through that we're created for community, you read through that we're, we're made to complete each other. Not in some goofy Jerry Maguire movie, you complete me, garbage. Because that comes from Christ. Only Christ can fill your heart and complete who you are. You don't need a husband or a wife or a friend to make you feel better about yourself. That should come from Jesus and Jesus alone. But then in our marriages, we should strive for the Trinity language to permeate all that we do. So I promise, if you go home and start reading the scriptures looking for the Trinity, look through the Old Testament, look how the disciples interacted with Jesus, look how Jesus interacted with his dad. So you have, he's at the Garden of Gethsemane and he's weeping, he's sweating blood and he's saying, Father, if you could take this cup for me, please do so. Jesus didn't walk in like a a sadist wanting to be beaten and destroyed and tortured, but he submitted to the will of the Father in mutual submission. He says, but your will be done. So God the Father says, you're going to do this. He says, I don't want to do it, but I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to do it. When Jesus is on, he says, Father, they don't know what they're doing. Show mercy on them. They don't know what. So you've got Jesus, the Son, crying out to the Father. Don't destroy them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't understand. Give them grace and mercy. Did God pour out his wrath then? No. You have this mutual relationship of submission and co-equalness. We only see that, though, in God's Word. We'll do this fast, because it's already foretell. I blame the choir in first service, I'll blame the choir in second service. You have two things. The Trinity, perfect relationship, perfect community. That should be our goal. We can only achieve that through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
That's why we would love for you to be in a small group. We would love for you to be in a Sunday school. We would love for you to invite people to your home. It's why your life is made more rich when you have others to live it with. But then you also have God's word. That we are too silly. We are too corrupt. We are too wicked to live this life on our own. To just figure it out. So God, in his infinite grace and mercy, speaks. And he chose to speak through oral tradition and then through the written word. That he spoke to us through people, through prophets who wrote it down. And we have for us his revealed word of God. His love letter written to you and to me. You can understand the Trinity by spending time in his word. You can understand your purpose by spending time in his word. It's where we find out who we are in God. So you have, in Genesis 1, God said. So he speaks. You have the idea of God speaking. He speaks to us. Um, but he's creator and we're created. He's the creator, we're the created being, so he needs to reveal himself to us. He speaks. Jesus spoke creation to existence. When Jesus comes back at the end, we see in Revelation 19, he's going to come back on a horse and he's going to speak. And it's over. So we are a people of the book. We're a people of this book. We're a people of God's word. We have two things, though. General revelation. So in Romans, we see how God has revealed himself to all. We talked about a little bit ago. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. I always have an easier time talking to, well, I can't say easier, because both tend to be okay. Um, When someone has in them a desire for knowledge, a desire to believe, a desire of faith, even if it's in a faith that's outside of Christ, they're, they're receptive, they're willing to talk. They're willing to listen. They've been given a general revelation that God exists. And it's my job to point them to the true God, not the false God. So we have a general revelation given to all. Sometimes we call this common grace. You have doctors who have this amazing ability given to them by God, and they would never give God the credit for that ability. A general revelation, a general grace, a common grace that says this man who's far from God doesn't understand that God gave him this ability. He can still stick his hand into someone's chest and fix their heart. That's a good gift from a loving God through general revelation. It says, I can give my people good things even through people who don't trust me. So everyone's been given a general revelation. So if you continue the verse, it says that's why there's, no one has an excuse. Everyone's been given a general revelation of God. What we have is a special revelation. We see that manifested in miracles, in Jesus himself, and in his word, the Bible. We have special revelation, specifics. This is how God wants you to act, live. This is what he means for you, the purpose for your life. We see it in miracles. He can reveal himself in special ways. We see it in Jesus himself. He reveals his love for us by sending Jesus to the cross for you and me. But we also see it in the Bible. Then in God's word, we see him revealing himself to us. General revelation produces great knowledge and advancement. But special revelation leads us to solo scriptura, which means nothing but the word. That there's other things outside of God's word that are good 
and we should learn from them and we have knowledge in them. Well, we can't be people that walk around going, all I read is my Bible. That's all I read. That wouldn't be a bad thing. But if you're a doctor or an attorney or you're a teacher or you, um, you work on, like my dad. I mean, my dad is a mechanic and a machinist, never learned anything about any car made after 1980. He'd go out of business. But that's not the Bible. So we learn and we learn knowledge and gain it from things outside of Scripture. But the ultimate authority that we give the highest authority to is the Word of God. Now, why would we do that? Um, I'm going to read them real fast. This is what God's Word says about God's Word. In Deuteronomy, and also this is Proverbs. Proverbs 30, taken from Deuteronomy, where it says that every word of God is flawless. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. goes on to say, do not add his word, or he will rebuke you and prove you to be a liar. In Isaiah, we're told the Bible is effective. God says, my word that I send forth will not return to me void. It will accomplish exactly what I intended for it to accomplish. Psalm 19, we're told that God's word, the scriptures are perfect. Psalm 119, we're told the whole chapter, this whole, the whole chapter is one of the longest explanations, the perfection and helplessness and truthfulness, helpfulness and truthfulness of Scripture. John 17, Jesus says, Father, sanctify them. Sanctify them by the truth of your word. So as he's praying in the high priestly prayer, he prays to the Father and says, sanctify them. Make them pure by your word. He doesn't say, take away their sinful hearts. He doesn't say, give them a good email. He doesn't say, send them some special little fairy to sit on their shoulder. He says, sanctify them through your word. Luke 6, you have the parable of Lazarus and the, and the rich man. So in this, it's a parable. So get that straight. I've seen this taught awfully as well. It's a parable where there's this man, he's a rich man, and he's, he dies. But before he dies, he's been walking past his house, and there's been a beggar named Lazarus at his door. And so he steps over him, doesn't care about him, doesn't want anything to do with him, and then they both die. And Jesus tells this parable, this is a parable, and he says that Lazarus is in heaven, and this rich man is in hell. And so this rich man in hell cries out and says, Hey, God, make Lazarus give me some water. And he says, uh, no. It's a parable. This isn't about you, people in hell, being able to see people in heaven, people in heaven interacting with people in hell. It has nothing to do with, can people in heaven see you or not see you? Can you interact with the dead? It's not what this is talking about. What it's saying is that when, when someone goes to hell, they don't change. That this rich man is in hell, and he hasn't stopped being a wicked sinful man and he's trying to command someone from heaven to give him water and when that doesn't happen in the parable we're told that it doesn't matter this rich man says would you please um if you're not going to bring me water at least at least tell all my family and friends that this is real that you're real that hell is real please tell them all that and the response is in jesus parable they already have moses they have the law and the prophets which he's saying, they already have the Bible. They don't believe the Bible, they don't believe me either. The Bible is sufficient to know God. So in the parable, even at eternity's door, God's word is sufficient to know God. In Acts 17, we kind of see this last thing where you have the Bereans. The job of the Bereans in Acts was to go around and test the scriptures. So every sermon, 
everyone who spoke, every letter written, they collected them and made sure they jived with Scripture. And anybody that came along with some false teaching, the Bereans would go, that is not what God's Word says. You're a false teacher. I wish the people that put books on the shelves, the Christian bookstore, had some Bereans on their staff. Because there'd be a lot less books at the Christian bookstore. The point is that we cling to Scripture alone. We cling to Scripture alone. So what's all this mean? A couple closing thoughts. We're created for pure community. As image bearers of God, we're created to be with others. You sitting home alone with no one around. I mean, the fact that you're coming to church means you're not this person. The fact that you're in this building means you're not this person. But we are created to be in community because we're image bearers of God. If God is the Trinity, therefore we're meant to be with others. That doesn't mean that everybody's got to go out and get a spouse. Everyone's got to go have some kids that make that completes you. What it's saying is you're meant to be in community. You're meant to have others around you. We're better when we're together. We also see that the truth of who God is and what our purpose is is in his revealed word. The truth of the Trinity, the truth of this perfect relationship that we should strive for is found in God's word. So together and with God's word, the world can make sense. I promise, if you would take just some time and think about the Trinity and think about that perfect relationship, and so then when, when the word of God, the revealed word of God says things like, you're supposed to forgive someone seven times 70. When people grieve you, when people go against you, when people hurt you, you're to forgive seven. Why would you do that? Because if I'm in an image bearer of God in a Trinitarian relationship of co-submission and co-love that never ends, then no matter how much you hurt me, I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to forgive you. What about the parts where Paul says we're to hold each other accountable? What about when Jesus says... In Matthew 18, we're to hold each other accountable. Well, I can't do that. I can't, I can't hold him accountable. I can't call him out in his sin. Well, why? God's word says you're supposed to. Because in a perfect community, in a Trinitarian relationship of co-submission and co-love, then you would look your co-life partner, whatever, your wife, you'd look your spouse, you'd look the person you do community with, person you live with, you'd look them in the eye and say, this isn't acceptable. And I'm telling you out of love. I'm holding you accountable because I love you. I'm holding you accountable because I want God's best for you. You see it throughout. Throughout the scriptures, every command, it points to the doctrine of the Trinity. I think one of the hardest parts for us to grasp this is because we don't see it around us. We are vengeful. We're spiteful. We gossip. We hate. We don't want to reconcile. Because we love, anger is a great fuel for the belly. It can drive you. I'm so mad and I'm going to keep my anger because it just makes me feel warm on a Wyoming winter night. (laughs) But that's not how we're supposed to live. That's not what we're called to live like. We turn on the TV, we see people that lie, cheat, and steal. That stand up and say one thing and they do something totally different. You walk in the grocery aisle and you see people on the magazines on your left and your right. They're supposed to live these perfect and happy lives and they're all a wreck. So that even the American dream falls apart before your eyes. We don't see great examples. So as a church, 
We should strive to be those good examples, to be people that love well, that forgive quickly, that look our brother and our sister in the eye when they're going off the deep end or down a dark path, and we say, because I love you, I need to speak into you. And we begin to be like that, then we see what we saw in the book of Acts, that people were added to their number because of how they loved each other. If you spend some time this week in prayer, some quiet time, reflecting on the idea of the Trinity, I think you'll find I'm right. I think you'll agree that every relationship that's been broken, every relationship that's been strained, has been strained because of personal want, personal hurt, lack of forgiveness, unwillingness to submit, unwillingness to love. And if we would do those things, we would see a picture-perfect image of Christ and the Father and the Spirit. So as we pray, um, oh, also in the handout, I didn't even mention this. Um, because I'm a big history guy and um, I love that stuff, um, I have on the back of the handout that's in the back, <laughs> they kind of went together. Um, on the back is a manuscript proof of the, the validity and the reliability of the New Testament. So you have those people that kind of play, that do the telephone game thing. Well, I can't trust the Bible because it's been translated 17 times and I can't believe that. Um, I, there's, a, there's a nice chart that shows that it's not the telephone game. So if I speak to Dan, I tell him a story and he spreads around the room and it comes back all the way over here to Kirk and he retells the story. It's a different story. People try to say that's how the Bible is translated. It's not true. It's a lie. Every translation of the Bible has gone back to the original source material. Anybody that plays that game of, well, the Bible's been translated, and that word didn't mean that, and that's not what it says anymore, and in today's modern cultural mind, I can read it myself. It's, it's a lie. Every scholarly translation of the Bible has gone back to the original Greek and Hebrew and translated it from there. So our modern English translations are reliable. Some are better than others, but they're reliable. And so I have on the handout, I have it laid out for you. What is general revelation, special revelation, and a chart that essentially says we have more good copies of the New Testament. The New Testament is more reliable than anything taught in the Greek philosophy classes at our university across the street. That if you're going to throw out the New Testament based on that, then we should never teach Plato or Aristotle. Herodotus should never be read. And we should never make movies out of what Homer wrote in the Iliad. Because they're all less accurate and less reliable than the New Testament. I forgot to mention that. Next week, we talk about creation, how God made it, um, how he made it perfect, and how it fell apart. Um, and yes, we will tackle evolution and all of those things next week. It'll be just a tiny little lecture. Okay? But the important part is all of this, like I want you to be equipped to share the gospel. So when you sit down with someone and say, well, I think Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Well, how can you believe that? because well, a book said it. Well, I don't trust that book. Well, it's been revealed to us. Well, that book's been made up. Well, no, it hasn't. Well, how can I have a relationship with Jesus Christ when my life's a mess? How could God love me? How could God love me where I'm at, given all that I've done? Well, because of his free act of grace and mercy on the cross, he's bringing you into the family. What if I don't want to be part of that family? Sounds like a dysfunctional family. I pray to God and he doesn't answer me. Well, it's because in a relationship with God, it's, an, it's a place of mutual submission. So just because you ask it of God doesn't mean he grants it. Because he's a good and loving father 
who's going to love you as his child, and you may not, that what you're praying may not be the best for you. Even if you're praying for healing, that may not be the best for you. The best thing for you may be to go through this road to show the gospel and then go home and be with him. But we're in a place of mutual submission. Because sometimes when you pray, God answers it in the way that you want. So you can't explain the gospel without laying out the good news of Jesus without laying out the Trinity. That it's a relationship. It's not he's the king and I'm his subject and he tells me what to do. It's he's a loving father who's brought me into the family and because he loves me, I'm going to love him back and I'm going to serve him in a multitude of ways. That's beautiful. And that's what we call you to, to a relationship with Jesus. It's to become part of his family, to be loved and to feel it even in the darkest times. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Um, thank you for the space to tackle a heavy theological topic, but it's essential. It's essential for what we believe and it's essential for who we are as your children. I know, Lord, that um, even for me, I mean, I'm not used to going through a topic. I like to be anchored in a section of Scripture and to let your word speak. So I pray, Lord, that you've spoken through um, the scripture we've read. I pray, Lord, that people have understood in a small part, because if I'm honest, Lord, I can't say that I understand eternity completely. Um, I understand it's true. I see where it's present in your word, but how the intricacies of that relationship functions, I don't know that I'll ever really understand that this side of heaven. So I pray, Lord, you'll help me to see clearly through your word. You'll help me to trust your word even in the hard parts that I would trust that you've revealed yourself, that all of it is to be used for teaching and edification of your people, um, that we would be people of relationship and people of your word. So Lord, today I pray if um, anyone has come in this space, um, that they're here for a reason. And I pray that they feel that, that maybe today's the day that you're going to open their hearts, you're going to reveal a piece of yourself to them, um, and they would submit their lives. If today's not that day, then I pray that we've seen um, you move that God, the Holy Spirit, has been felt and present in this space. Um, And then as people leave here, that they'll understand God, the Holy Spirit, chases them. That you are a gentleman, and you are going to be ever-present, ever-near, waiting for the day in which we would submit our lives to you. Thank you for this day, and I pray, Lord, you help to equip us to share the good news of your sacrifice on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand as we sing our final song of invitation.